Greetings, fellow imps. I'm Imp Fossil Tom Hensky, and I'd like to welcome you to From Nowhere to Now Here, where incarnate memories prevail. Like many incoming first years, I entered the university a blank canvas. You get it, nowhere. But four years later, I grew to now here. And when I look back at that transformation, it was the friendships that I built through the imps that were a huge part of that growth. But where did everyone end up? I'm going to take us on a journey to find them, to catch up with the friends we've lost touch with. And in doing so, my mission is to rekindle these amazing relationships. Imp Nation, what's going on? Very special guest for me today. Uh, before we get into that, thank you to Phil Gates, who uh, has flooded my inbox with former imps and their email addresses. So I haven't had a chance to get them all in, on the distribution list, but I will. But thank you, Phil, for doing that. Anyone else who has uh, a name of someone who's not on our list, send it along. Uh, don't forget about the Facebook page that Anna Yates put together. Make sure you get on that. If you uh, can't find it, then just hit me an email, let me know. But today, not only do I have a friend, but I have someone that I also consider a mentor. And he's always been open for whenever I'm thinking about the next greatest idea to call him and you know, he'll tell me what an idiot I am and I got to think about it and just go back to the day job and focus on what I'm doing. But all joking aside, Mike is uh, just awesome. So I have with us the professor, Mike Lennox. What's going on, Mike? Um, thank you so much for having me. I, I don't know. I'm a little scared that you consider me a, a mentor. When you talk to Macy, she will definitely tell you that I'm, I'm the idiot here. So uh, um, I, I hope I've given good advice in the past. Well, it's funny. I've learned as I'm married and have kids that if your name is husband or dad, that is synonymous for idiot. So like you're in great company. I'm with you, my brother. I hear you. I, I have a 16 year old daughter and I say there's nothing that creates more humility than having a 16 year old daughter. Great. And I've got my daughter's 14. So she's just starting to get to that stage. Uh, yeah. So it's like uh, I go from being the best of the best to the worst of the worst. So and there's <laughs> no one between ever. So I hear you, man. So what's happening? Like, give us the background, because none of us even talk about this when we're in college. So what were you doing in high school? How did it lead to Charlottesville? What was the road? Yeah, yeah. So uh, born and raised in an old steel town outside of Philadelphia called Morrisville, Pennsylvania. It's actually right across from uh, Trenton, New Jersey. You know, it's interesting kind of the story of how I discovered UVA. Uh, it really wasn't on my radar screen. And my girlfriend at the time, her dad went to UVA and she was, you know, all set to go to UVA. And so when I started looking at colleges, I actually did a trip with my parents down to see Duke. And on the way, I was like, well, we should check out this UVA, you know, again, my girlfriend's interested in it, uh, came down and kind of fell in love with it, went through the whole admissions process and, and ultimately decided to come come to UVA. So it wasn't originally on my radar, but then this became this place that I, uh, you know, fell in love with from the day I stepped on the lawn. My mom claims and, and this sounds so cocky of me that apparently when I stepped on the lawn, I said, I want to I want to live here someday in one of the uh, in the lawn room. So um, I, I definitely had a vision for what I wanted to do when I when I first got there. So I just need to ask you, does Macy know that you had a girlfriend before her or should I edit that part out of the podcast? Because I think she thought <laughs> she was your one and only. Is she, she going to be OK with that? <laughs> yes, yeah, she knows very well that I had a girlfriend before coming to UVA. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to interview her and we'll find out if that's actually true, Michael. So, okay. So you get to show it's surprising that I had a girlfriend, but yes, yeah, I did. Yeah, yes, that's, you're right. I don't even want to get into that. You know, the fact that you had Macy, we thought you just got lucky once. So that was, yeah, uh, no, I did get lucky once. That's yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> Good answer. That's great. You get to stay in your house after saying that I'll keep that part in. So, okay, so you get to Charlottesville, old dorm, new dorm, no dorm, tent. Where are you? I am old dorm in the basement of Metcalf. 
you know, so it was, uh, you know, 100 degrees, I think, when we first got there. Um, but but living living large in the old dorms. And, you know, you're still in Charlottesville because you're teaching there. We're going to get into that uh, a little bit. But what's the dorm situation like? Are there still new dorms and old, old dorms or is it just one big dorm? What do we got going on there? Yeah. So the interesting thing is the new dorms are now all the new, new dorms. So they tore down all the new dorms and built really nice new facilities. They're all like internal hallways, a little bit more like the old dorms and the old dorms, they finally put in air conditioning like a couple years ago now. So they're, they're raising the game now. It's not, it's not what we had when we were, we were undergrads. But that's interesting to hear that they finally have air conditioning. It's not like the sweat fest that it used to be back in the day. Exactly. So, okay. So you're there, you're at the university. Tell me about what your experience was like. I know you're an engineering major, but did it start that way? Yeah. Yeah. I went, you know, I think like a lot of people, I, I was good at math. So everybody said I should do engineering. I had no idea really what an engineer was. Um, so I was in the engineering school. Um, probably the biggest thing my first year is I, I rode on the crew team. Um, and it was one of those stories that, you know, they had the big, uh, you know, fair for the different organizations and things. And since I was tall, they kind of, you know, asked if I would be interested and had it never really even knew what crew was at the, at the time. Uh, and then, you know, tried out and made the team. And so rode, uh, my first year, which was, let's just say, you know, intense six days a week, basically the whole year rowing at 6am in the morning um during that during that first year well i laugh because i knew that about you uh that you were an early riser back in the day i don't know how i remember that that's just one of the things so when we scheduled this podcast time i know if i said 9 30 a.m which is what time it is as we tape this i knew you'd probably almost be on lunch with that with that <laughs> not, not quite that early but yeah but even though you know actually one of the reasons i stopped doing crew was um, I started getting into this bad habit of like getting up at six, go, go to practice, get back, go to sleep, miss all my classes, wake up like two in the afternoon. Uh, and that would be like my day. And then, um, needless to say, my, my grades started to suffer in the spring of my first year. So, uh, um, ended up in my second year trying out for the volleyball team, which is something I had done just playing beach volleyball for years and made that team uh, and decided to do that over crew. Uh, volleyball was definitely a um, more laid back than crew. It's a great sport, but it was not quite as intense. The practices were in the afternoons and uh, it just wasn't quite as uh, as intense as the, as the crew. You know, uh, that's funny. So now that you're on the other side of the table, literally, and you're teaching, um, do you find I guess probably not in the business school. You're not finding kids uh, skipping classes like we maybe did. We were a little bit more liberal back in the day when that was going on and sleeping through classes. Yeah, yeah. So no, Darden, you know, they're a little bit older. They're a little more sensitive because they're typically paying for their education themselves directly. And so they they tend to show up. And it's also the way we do teaching in, in Darden with the case method. Participation matters a lot. You need to be there in the, in the classroom. Yeah, I, you know, as an engineering student, I, I, you know, I hope my students aren't listening to this because, you know, I did skip class a lot. Um, I, I really got to the point where, like, if I didn't feel like I was getting anything out of the class that I couldn't get out of the textbook, it was more efficient for me to, to skip class and kind of do the work, um, you know, by reading the textbook and doing the problem sets and the like. So I, I don't know if I was a model student. I did all right in my grades, but, I, you know, it was definitely kind of, you know, how to best survive the engineering school. Well, you clearly did okay with your grades because not only did you get your, uh, you got your master's, but then you went to MIT, which is a pretty slouchy school, we all know, uh, <laughs> to get your doctorate. So uh, clearly somewhere in there, either you knew somebody or your grades were a little <laughs> bit better than you're letting on. But I, I also remember uh, from our standpoint on the soccer side, they would actually send one of the assistant coaches to some of our classes, the spot check that we actually made it to class. 
So it was yeah. like the, the fear of that happening got us out of bed to to do things. So okay, and that, so that's now, the beauty of, of that's the beauty of doing club sports, right? That uh, both both volleyball and crew were for men at least were club sports as opposed to varsity for the women, and so we we didn't have those rules uh, at the end of the day um, in terms of eligibility and the like. But the downside of that, I think, especially with crew, is they also didn't have limits on the number of hours that you practice. So I feel like we didn't we we might have actually practiced more than what was NCAA. Uh, you know, restricted because it was a club sport. Yeah, it was funny. Yeah, it was the wild, wild west back then. And half of the time was because no one understood what the NCAA rules were, right? Like, so the ones that are like, don't pay athletes, everyone knew. But things like hours and all the minutiae that goes along with that, some of the coaches didn't even bother to know. So uh, I remember once that they had um, some sort of community program for us where they would match us up with, one of the um, families in Charlottesville and that would be your family home away from home. And I remember them, the guy owned little Caesars pizza and he would give me coupons for free pizzas and didn't even occur to me back then, you know, cause in my mind, I'm like, Oh, it's food. And now like, if you think about it, I'm like, okay, that was an NCA violation. I'm sure. Right. <laughs> they, they can't give you food. So um, Tom, you might want to edit that out. I don't want you to lose those national championships that you had, you know, yeah, take yeah, those away yeah. from you. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there's probably, is it too late? Am I beyond the statute of limitations to, that they might kick me out of school for something that, like that? I don't know. I think you're safe. I think you're safe. I'm thinking I'm safe. Yeah. I think, I think I'm going to be good too, but I will edit that out just to be sure. So, okay. So, <laughs> so now you're chugging along and you're in the university and at some point, some crazy people with horns and a trident come and find you. So what, what's the yeah. story there? Yeah. Well, I mean, the other, the other kind of weird part of my story, I guess, is that I, I eventually got very involved with the honor committee. Um, but I, I wouldn't say I was like a politico before then. So the, the path for me was I ran for vice president of the engineering school, um, I guess in the spring of my sophomore year or second year, uh, going into my third year. Um, and so served in that role, made you on the honor committee as the representative, one of the two representatives from the engineering school. And then in my end of my third year, ran for president and then was on the honors uh, uh, committee for that reason, and then got selected honor chair. Um, so it was kind of right in the wake of that, that I got tapped for, uh, for the imps. Um, the story, I was trying to remember uh, who came into the room. I think it was Rainey Russell who was with Judish. And I wanna say either Phil Gates or John Blank, I think was the other one. And it, it was, you know, your typical scenario for the honor chair of like something had blown up with the judicial honor and this was going to be a massive honor uh, case that was going to be coming down the pipeline. And, you know, that's that's what they that, that they used to try to get me there. You'd be surprised. I get uh, lots of emails from our vast audience of listeners. And one of the questions that they wanted me to ask you today uh, has been on a lot of people's minds. And it's this. Was having a fake ID to get into the Biltmore, was that considered an honor violation or was that just one of the, um, you know, the carve outs to the honor code? We, we all want to know. So do you remember that, Mike? What, what's the answer to that? There actually, I think, was a carve out to the honor code for fake IDs that started in like the 70s. Um, I, you know, and Macy can verify this. I actually never had a fake ID. Um, I'm not saying I never, you know, went into a bar and drank when I was underage, but I never actually had a, a, a fake ID. So you couldn't get me on that one there. No, no, no. We wouldn't try to get you on that one. And, you know, <laughs> it, the, at the end of the day, especially at the Biltmore, all like the football players were the bouncers at the front door. So there was no need for a fake ID um, because we all just got in. So, OK, let's move on to the next one before I get anyone in trouble on that one. So, OK, so now you get tapped by the imps. Tell me about the imp experience. It's, it was pretty special for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, I think as others have talked about, I think it's got to be and I think it continues to be one of the most diverse groups on grounds um, and, and diverse in lots of different ways. Right. You know, people talked about, you know, the athletes and the politicos and the people who just do like amazing things at the university who might not get the recognition. I think they, they probably deserve sometimes in terms of like the you know activities and service that they're doing. 
And, um, and I just think it opens up a door to the totality of the university in ways that, you know, a lot of us just found ourselves in different, you know, different little bubbles. You know, I was in a fraternity, so I was kind of in the fraternity bubble and, and, and getting involved with honor. And so getting to meet people like yourself and, you know, Charles Way uh, and Freddie and on the, on, amongst the athletes and, you know, people like Brian and others, you know, from other, other parts of the university, it's just, it's just special. And it's just, it's amazing. I think what you're doing with these podcasts and just the way it's reconnecting all of us. Um, it's just, it's just a special group. Yeah. And, you know, we're actually learning a lot about each other that we didn't know. For example, you just mentioned you were in a fraternity. I didn't remember you being in a fraternity. What frat were you in? Uh, I was in Theta Chi. Ah, and, uh, how's the, um, keep in touch uh, with the fraternity brothers. Do you guys keep in close touch? What's that like? I, I do actually, yeah. I have a, a, a group of, of probably about a half dozen to a dozen who I keep in touch with quite regularly. Um, you know, we come, especially living here in Charlottesville, we're popular now with, you know, coming, coming back for sporting events and the like. But I had a group, we would go to the beach, uh, do a beach week together for, for years uh, until our kids got a little older. Um, so that's been really special for me. It's been special for Macy with her sorority as well. Like she's going to a, um, a weekend with her sorority sisters next weekend, you know, so yeah, we, we definitely still stay in touch. Yeah. For all of us that want to crash that party, um, where is she having that reunion with her sorority sisters? Yeah, I, I can't reveal that's, that's a, that's secret, secret information, Tom. Oh, that's too bad. I would have liked to attend that one. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll move on from that then. Maybe I'll get it out later in the show. So, okay, so now any stories, notable stories that you remember from your time at the university? You know, so the tappings were always interesting for me. Um, this is a good one you can verify with Macy. I, I think I'm a really humorous drunk. Uh, Macy claims otherwise that apparently I'm just an obnoxious drunk, but you know, at least in my mind, I, I'm, I'm hysterical uh, during those times. And the, the funny thing for my tapping is probably it was three years before me, uh, Lonnie Chafin, another imp, another honor chair, and also a fraternity of brother of mine. So we kind of hit on three things here had a very infamous tapping uh, in which he was accused of punching a horse. And I am not making that up. Uh, and in fact, oh, excuse me, I have to be clear, the horse that was a police officer's horse uh, uh, during the tapping, um, you know, the sad thing is he actually kind of lost his honor chair. He, he you know, he, it was it was a scandal uh, for sure. And uh, Phil Gates in particular, I remember he was like my guardian angel, like making sure that as we go through that evening that like Mike does not get arrested uh, for anything uh, that night. So people were very, very nice to me and very protective of me because uh, I was definitely wasted for that, uh, for the tapping. Well, I'm glad to hear you didn't hit any horses. That would have been, uh, <laughs> that would have been an imp scandal. It'll, that's a, that's a good one. I haven't, haven't you know, you're going to be surprised. I haven't had that one on the show yet. The story of someone <laughs> horse. So, all right, good. Yeah. yeah and, and why the discrepancy between your version of your, um, drunkenness and Macy's what's the what's the deal there why does she see it through different glasses well because you can see the truth and I'm just spinning it to make me you know look better of course you know right and, and you know when it comes to ego the truth is irrelevant right so <laughs> cool so um and then take me through the end up into your fourth year uh and then your studies what was going on there where was your head at and did you think you were going to pursue trying to get your doctorate, like, tell me where you were at. Where yeah, you at. haven't asked me like the most important thing yet. I'm surprised you haven't asked me about, you know, how did I meet Macy and how did that, uh, yeah. you know, come Well, I was gonna that. save that for later in the show, but go ahead, you, I know well, you can get your love on as soon as possible. So tell us, cause I was gonna ask it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I can't tell that story without telling, you know, what, what happens afterwards. So um, we actually met uh, um, pre-imps. So we're, we're an imp couple that, that were dating um, when we became imps, each became imps. Um, so I met her at, towards the end of her first year. Uh, I was a second year, so I'm one year older. And we actually met at Sigma Chi, which is the fraternity house right next to Theta Chi. There was a party over there and we were hanging out in the, um, there was like an outdoor um, uh, patio that they had. And we got to talking and uh, I think we clicked. I think we were, we were both interested. And then it was right at the end of the year. And, you know, I, I, again, just to establish, I'm an idiot. So I thought, 
Foxfield is coming up. I'm going to invite her to Foxfield. But being the idiot I am, I just kept kind of waiting. And, you know, for any younger imps out there, this was a time period like where we didn't really have phones or email. So to like to actually contact someone like took some real effort. Um, and so I eventually asked her. And of course, she's already been asked. She's already gone to Foxfield with somebody else. Um, so I thought I had kind of had missed my missed my opportunity. But um uh, luckily, uh, she was still interested in me, and her sorority had a um, what do they call it? Uh, uh, it's not mystery date, um, but it basically they set you up with somebody and don't tell their sorority sisters who they set you up with. So her sorority sister fixed her up with me. Uh, we had a great date, uh, started hanging out more, um, and then of course the summer came, and she invited me to the Outer Banks, which where she was she was living and working that summer. Uh, her parents had a house there. And so I came to visit her and had a great time. And at the kind of the end of the trip, she kind of gave me the ultimatum, basically like, are we dating or not? And so again, I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm kind of like, oh, okay. And so we, we kind of started dating from, uh, from that point on. Uh, and you know, the rest is history. We've been married now. We just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary uh, last year. So going back to your question of kind of what was happening towards the end of UVA, um, so a couple things happened. Um, I was graduating. I ended up majoring in systems engineering. Again, I had kind of no idea what you do with systems engineering. And I just started interviewing with consulting firms because people told me engineers, you know, systems engineers in particular, can have good appeal for consulting firms. I, I ended up getting a job with Coopers and Librand, which is now part of PricewaterhouseCoopers, on the tech consulting side, not on the accounting side. And um, ended up working at a deal with them where um, I could take the job, but I would actually be able to stay and complete my master's at UVA, uh, partly because I wanted to stay and hang around with Macy, who still had her uh, fourth year to complete. So I worked there in the summer, came back, and then uh, did my master's uh, for a fifth year, uh, which was a great year. I ended up living on Browns Mountain, uh, which is now, I guess, Mount Alto, uh, right next to Monticello, where there was a lot of grad students living up there, uh, live, living the good life uh, up on the, on the mountain. Uh, and then during the spring, and, and this is a true story, and I say this again, not to be cocky, it's just to highlight that I'm an idiot. I applied to the PhD program at MIT on a whim. Um, a friend of mine had done this particular program, it sounded interesting, and I put my application in. And, and the part that I get in trouble for is I didn't tell Macy. Um, I just kind of filled out and, and did it uh, and didn't tell Macy. And then I got in. And that was kind of a surprise. And, uh, and, and then of course I did tell her at that point. And we, uh, we had some serious conversations about what we wanted to do next. And uh, it was all in the summer after my fifth year, after Macy's fourth year, when she had graduated, ended up proposing, uh, which is in itself, you can tell the story, it's a longer story, but proposed on the lawn, not surprisingly on those steps of the rotunda. Um, and we ended up moving up to Boston uh, where Macy took a job at Mount Holyoke College in the admissions office, and I was starting my PhD program at MIT. So the lesson learned there, that was probably the last time you did something without asking for permission first. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's, we, we all learned that lesson. And then I know personally that you had a little stint in New York. So you yeah. were at NYU. So, and I, I didn't, you were married at that point, right? Yeah. So we, you know, uh, went up to Boston, got married uh, again, Charlottesville wedding in the chapel uh, uh, reception at the alumni hall. Took five years. The PhD program takes a, take a while. Uh, Macy, meanwhile, just, you know, tagging along, uh, goes to Harvard and then starts working at Harvard. You know, this is going to be a pattern you're going to see here that, you know, she she outdoes me every step of the way when we go to go different places. Um, so we were we were there in Boston, uh, actually lived on Harvard Yard uh, as uh, dorm parents. They call them proctors there. Um, so it, it was just an awesome experience. Awesome time. Uh, went on the job market for faculty positions and got one at NYU and uh, um, for a variety of reasons. At first, we really weren't that interested in living in New York, um, but it was the, a great opportunity for me, great, great group that I'd be working with. And so took the job at NYU. Interestingly, again, you're going to see a common theme here. Macy then gets a job at Princeton, uh, at the Princeton admissions office. So she's, you know, now Harvard, now Princeton. 
Um, we decided to live in Princeton at first, uh, and I commuted into the city. And that was great. I love Princeton. I, I grew up not too far away from there, though maybe worlds apart from there. Um, and then um, uh, she wasn't loving her job. I wasn't loving the commute. And so we moved into the city and she actually switched to doing grad school at, at Columbia at Teachers College. Again, you know, every step of the way, she, she, she does pretty well here. So she's at Columbia, I'm at uh, NYU teaching and we were, you know, living the, living the city life right down in the, probably the southernmost point of Manhattan. We were right on Battery Park, uh, had a, actually a great apartment that overlooked uh, the Statue of Liberty and the Hudson River. And, and we ended up just loving, loving our time in, in New York. You know, let me, having lived in New York, as you know, I lived in New York for a while and have worked there for ever since we graduated. Um, you might not, not even remember this, but there was one night where Stacy and I, that Stacy's my wife, as you know, but uh, the people listening might not know, we had dinner with you guys downtown. Yeah. And the one thing about New Yorkers when you leave New York that we all say to each other is, all the things that we didn't do, right? Like I lived on the Upper East Side. I would take a cab across 86th Street and then down Fifth Avenue. My office was on Fifth Avenue. And every morning I would pass probably three or four museums. And I kept thinking to myself, oh, I should, I should go there one day. And it's one of the things that I think now because we had that dinner and then we loosely stayed in touch. And then probably about seven years ago, or so Spencer, my son, was going down to basketball camp down in Charlottesville and we caught up again, right? Yeah. And you think about like back then when we had that dinner, we didn't have kids. We could have done that a whole lot more. And I'd say to myself, God, I really squandered some time that I could have been hanging out with friends. So if we ever, if this ever gets to the younger imp nation, remember when you're in a city with other imps, make more time to hang and catch up yeah. and spend time because while you're busy at work, it could, you still could always fit in a quick drink or dinner for an hour and a half one night. So you're in New York and you're a professor there. And then, so tell me how the whole UVA thing popped up again. Yeah. So there was an intermediate step in there. Um, so again, it could be a much longer story, but we were um, two blocks away from the World Trade Center. When 9-11 occurred, Macy was four months pregnant um, with Ben, our first uh, child. And um, she saw both planes hit. She was actually out walking the dogs. Luckily, we caught up with one another in the whole scrum of that. We ended up being evacuated by ferry over to Jersey City, covered in soot. You know, you see the pictures of people that that was us. And, you know, that, that definitely started to motivate us to think maybe our run in the city is done and, and we're ready to, to, to move on to a new location, um, especially with Macy pregnant. When they started to put the signs up around lower Manhattan that says we're doing studies on pregnant women and the impact of uh, the debris, we're like, we're done. We're done. Uh, so I, I went on the job market again, uh, ended up getting a position at Duke, um, which you know, it was really attractive to us. We really wanted to get back down south um, and, uh, and Duke's a great place. So we ended up moving down. We ended up moving to Chapel Hill, which a lot of people do. Uh, Chapel Hill's only eight miles away from, from Duke. So moved down there, had been. So I always feel like, you know, we, we did New York right. Like right when we started having kids, we got out of there. And so, you know, we joked that all those fun things we could do in New York, we really couldn't do anymore with, a, with an infant. Uh, and so uh, lived in Chapel Hill actually for, for six years. So for six years, we were down there, uh, really had established ourselves. Haley was born in 2004. Um, so they were four and uh, two, I think, or, or actually six and four. When I actually came up to give a talk at, uh, at Darden, um, which is something we as faculty do, we're invited to give you know, research presentations at different schools. Um, and I have to say at that point, we had always dreamed about coming back to UVA, but in some ways had, had given up on the dream and that we were really established. We had a great group of friends down in, in North Carolina. Uh, I had tenure at Duke by that point. Um, so I had you know, no reason to leave. I actually had just raised $5 million for a new center. Uh, it was serving as the chair of the department. So like life was good, things were good. And I gave this talk and they suddenly said, how would you feel about joining us on our faculty? And uh, um, 
you know, people are shocked on the UVA side to know, like it, it was, we, we debated it for a while. Um, but I think, I think we always were going to say yes. It was, it's impossible to say no to, to Charlottesville and UVA. Uh, and, and I love Darden as well. So uh, we eventually said yes, uh, moved down or moved up here, I guess, from Chapel Hill in 2008. Uh, and have been here ever since, been here 13 years. And, and you know, in many ways, our kids have, have grown up now in Charlottesville. My son's a first year at UVA. You know, um, a lot of us seem to be getting our kids here at UVA, which is awesome. Uh, um, Haley's a, a junior in high school. The kids have grown up going to UVA sporting events. I mean, it's actually one of our big family things to do is to go to football and basketball games together. Uh, been to the national championship, you know, with the kids for uh, the final four a few years ago. And so, you know, living the dream, living the dream here in Charlottesville. And is what, take me back to that first year that you were teaching there. Was it a little trip down memory lane? What was it like? Well, you know, it's funny, you know, when friends come in town, they all want to go relive those experiences as undergrads. Like, let's go get a Gus Burger and let's go to the Biltmore. And uh, living here, we're kind of like, well, you know, there's a lot better restaurants in town and there's a lot better places to go drink, you know, if you're not 18. Um, and so, you know, sometimes we'll entertain those, you know, nostalgia tours. But I, I think the thing that, you know, we, were, we we did our homework. And one of the things that I think we really realized is, and, and I think everyone knows this, but like Charlottesville is amazing. It's, it's just an amazing town, an amazing area. Um, and it's amazing for those who are, you know, 40 or 50, not just those who are 18 and, you know, 20. Uh, and um, I think that was really a large, you know, part of the appeal is just the, the lifestyle down here is just, just truly wonderful. And Charlottesville routinely is ranked as one of the best places to live and raise a family or retire and the like. Uh, and it's and it's with good reason. So yeah, you know, that first year, there was a little bit of the nostalgia, um, but especially being a, a college professor, um, also some caution there. Actually, here's a, a fun story, Tom. So a friend from Chapel Hill had come up and they did want to do the, the Gus Burger thing. And so we had done the Gus Burger at like, not even that late, it was probably like 11 o'clock at night. And it was packed and crowded. And as we're going in, someone bumped his wife and like sprayed fries all over her. And it was quickly escalating. And I'm sitting here going, oh God, like I'm just a new professor here. And this is gonna be the story on the Cavalier Daily of the professor getting into a fight with undergrads at, at the Gus Burger. And luckily we were able to calm tensions down and kind of get out of there without it uh, escalating any further. But yeah. Um, definitely have to be a little cautious. So, you know, I'm going to ask you about the uh, Mr. Mead class that you've taken over. Yeah. But before we get into that, can you just give so give us a little background? So what are you teaching today? We know you didn't take over for by psych. We know it wasn't <laughs> in the physics class how things work. Um, we know it wasn't either of those. It wasn't strong probability. What are you teaching now? Yeah, well, that, I'm glad you asked that. So, um, so I did systems engineering undergrad, but I always had an interest in environmental issues. So I actually did work on environmental risk assessment uh, with the Center for Risk Assessment as a master's student and went to a program at MIT that was effectively, I have my PhD in economics, but it was in particular focusing on technology and policy. Uh, so being very MIT, um, policy issues that had heavy technological bents like environment or energy or telecommunications policy. When I first went into my program, I thought I was going to be like a policy professor, a public policy professor. Um, but I got working with a research group that was looking at the interface between business and public policy. And it put me down a path towards a business school um, profession and position. I uh, got that first job at NYU uh, teaching business strategy uh, as kind of my core um, course and never looked back. So I've been teaching business strategy now for uh, 20 plus years. Um, it's kind of applied economics is the way I think about it. Um, and in addition, I have kind of interests around technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship. I, I ran the Batten Institute for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at UVA uh, for the first eight years I was here. Um, and I also do a lot at the interface of uh, business and public policy, especially around environmental issues. So I have a couple books that have come out recently uh, on topics like decarbonization and climate change and uh, how, how technologies are evolving as it relates to uh, environmental issues. 
So is that the new book that's coming out that we were talking about earlier? Or is it yeah, already? So I, had a, I had a, so I had a 2018 book um, called uh, Can Business Save the Earth? Trying to be provocative. Uh, and then I have a new book coming out in October uh, called The Decarbonization Imperative that looks specifically at climate change and how we might actually decarbonize the global economy. You know, I think a lot of the listeners would uh, actually be interested in that. Tell me about where are we going to find that book? Go to Amazon. Go to Amazon. You can pre-order today on Amazon.com. And then now, you know, I was going to ask about, you know, Mr. Mead. Tell me about, yeah. I think rumor has it you just held one of your classes at your house. Is that true? Yeah, that rumor is true. That was just yesterday. So, yeah, I, I mean, we haven't talked about Mr. Mead. So I took the Mead seminar, knew Mr. Mead as an undergrad. He was really influential for me, um, when I when I was actually considering to go back to get you know the PhD, one of the things I started to ask myself is uh, what type of career do I want to have, and and ultimately what is kind of the end game of that, and in particular, asking myself uh, or at least declaring that I want a job that I don't ever want to retire from, and and Mr. Mead was you know I think the best example. I mean he taught till he was ninety six, right? He was emeritus at that point, but he was still doing the seminar then. And the passion he had, the love he had for the students and for the university, um, that was really, really motivating for me. Um, I actually come from a, a family of educators from the K-12 level. My dad was a high school teacher and eventually a high school principal. My mom was a guidance counselor. And it's funny, coming into college, I, I was very much like, I don't ever want to be a teacher, seeing what they had to go through. They, they were at a school that, you know, they had to deal with drugs and violence and things. And it was just, it was a hard, hard existence, you know, really powerful for them to, to do that. Um, so for me, um, then finding the professor route was kind of ironic that I ended up becoming a teacher. Um, but I, I've loved every minute of it. And so with Mr. Mead, he's always been a big mentor and a big uh, inspiration for me. Um, the story goes, when I first got here, uh, I got involved uh, heavily with the Mead Endowment Program that maybe some of, of the imps are familiar with. Uh, and through that, one of my students at Darden suggested, hey, we should do something like Mr. Mead's Lawn Seminar at Darden. So back all the way in like 2009, 2010, I started a Darden version of the Lawn Seminar uh, with my Darden students. Uh, and all the time we would actually, those first few years, it was a lot of fun because we were able to have Mr. Mead come as a guest uh, and, and participate. He would have me often come as a guest to his, you know, classic lawn seminar. Uh, and then, you know, unfortunately he passed away though, again, an incredible run, um, like I said, made it to 96 and was still teaching the seminar. And I have to say, you know, his physical health started to fail him, but his mental acuity, unbelievable. I mean, just uh, on it to the very, very end. Um, and so after he passed away, uh, Pat Lampkin and some others at UVA approached me about keeping the tradition going. And, and I have to say, I was, um, it, was, it was the most honored thing that I think I've ever received was being asked to continue that, that tradition. Um, so I've been doing the undergraduate version of the Lawn Seminar now. I just counted. It's actually been seven years uh, that I've been doing it. Um, we still meet on the lawn. If the weather's allowing, we often just sit there on either blankets or chairs right there on the lawn or in one of the gardens. Uh, and then I, you know, uh, definitely enjoy having them over the, the house, you know, a couple times if we can. Um, so this past year has been tough with COVID, but uh, luckily we were able, you know, we were able to make it work. You know, we we're sitting on the lawn in mass, but uh, uh, at least we were able to sit together uh, and, and do that. Well, it's no surprise that they tapped, no pun intended, the uh, 40 under 40 world's best professor, uh, name back in the day. Yeah, I did my research because I know you would never toot your own horn. So you know, the funny thing is, I got I got I got that honor like uh, like three months before I turned forty. So you know, I was I was forty under forty for like three months, and then you know, I aged out of it. You're you're like a typical like uh, college kid. You you procrastinate to the last minute, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. And then I know you were doing some work with the uh, athletic department, right? Uh, with uh, Tony Bennett and Coach Bronco, right? Uh, what, yeah. what's going on there? Yeah, so uh, John Oliver, the former uh, assistant AD or associate AD uh, for UVA, had done a executive education program at UVA or at Darden, where I was teaching, you know, basically, you know, foundations of strategy. And uh, he felt like what I was teaching could be really useful to the coaches. 
Um, and so we put these sessions together where I was running the coaches through kind of a strategy 101 uh, type of sessions. And um, it was a lot of fun, uh, fascinating. Um, I went into it with as much humility as possible, knowing like, you know, here I am telling Tony Bennett and Bronco, like how to think about strategy. Uh, and to be very clear, uh, the perspective I was bringing had nothing to do with X's and O's. Like I was going, you know, uh, I, I, this is, I'm not talking about game time strategy. We're talking about organizational strategy here. Uh, and in particular, we talk a lot about how do you position your athletic program, especially from a recruiting standpoint, to differentiate from all the other um, entities are out there. And I think the it, most interesting part of the conversations was how do you leverage UVA's brand, if you will, to position your athletic program to get the types of recruits that you want. Uh, and I just think it led to some really fascinating conversations across the athletic program as well, that could you create commonality that Tony could even help recruit for the soccer team or, you know, the soccer team could help recruit for lacrosse because they're telling a consistent story about the types of students they want here at UVA and who UVA would be attracted to. So is that to say that you played a major part in the basketball team's national championship, Mike? Is that is that what I'm hearing? Hey, Tom, I, I wouldn't say that. I'll just point out that we did all this work in like, you know, 2018 or so. So, it, you know, it, it really, you know, I don't know, cause and effect, maybe, you know, I, I did this work and then they win a national championship. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think it was all me. I think it was probably all me. And, you know, and because it probably was all you, that means it was probably all the imps since the imps were your inspiration. So... Information, <laughs> you didn't know this, but we are responsible for the National Basketball Championship. Who knew that little imp? I like right? that. I like, I like that. Yeah. I think we should, I think we need to put a big fat imp somewhere that isn't already there on the athletic uh, complex. Yeah. I think I'm going to write a letter today and suggest that right in the center court, instead of having <laughs> a Virginia symbol, that we have an imp. What like what do you think about that? Do you think that the athletic department would go for that? Not, the only thing we got to be careful is if we put the if we put the devil with the horns on there, you know, it just can't be confused with our our friends to the south uh, who who have a blue version of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. We got to be careful about that one. Maybe we'll rethink that. So, uh, family questions, and I know we talked a ton about Mason. Tell me about Ben and Haley. What what do they have going on? Ben's a student at UVA. That must yeah. Be so cute. Ben Ben's a a first year at UVA. Um, I'm so glad that he's had at least, uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe a partial <laughs> typical experience. I mean, he's been in the dorms. Uh, COVID has been, it's been a tough year as everybody knows. And, um, but I, I'm really happy that he at least had that experience. Um, Haley is, uh, I guess, following in her dad's footsteps. She's actually rowing crew. It's, it's interesting. She goes to a public high school here. I think we might be one of the few public high schools in the state of Virginia that have a, a crew team. Um, but uh, she's been doing that uh, and, 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 doing, and doing great. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been great. It's been really good. They're really both doing well. So, you know, Imp Nation wants to know two things. One is, uh, is Ben's roommate in the dorms, Macy? Um, is she, did she find a way to like, uh, be in the dorm room next to him to do all laundry, <laughs> things like that. And the second thing that they want to know is, are you going out drinking with him and his friends on Thursday, Friday and Saturday nights? Yes. Yeah. So the answer to both those is no. Uh, so, you know, it's funny because I think, you know, for Ben, um, as he went through the process living here in Charlottesville, I think a lot of the kids who live here in Charlottesville, like it's, you know, it's hard sometimes to think about going to college literally 10 minutes away from where you grew up in your home. Uh, and there's a lot of people from his high school to go to UVA. I, I think at the end of the day, he realized that like this was the place he had to be. I, the funniest one is we have all these pictures of him visiting other colleges like UNC and Duke wearing UVA national championship garb. And it was kind of we started to get the clear, you know, the clear signal there that um, that, that UVA was going to be his his top choice. Um, we've really tried to respect of like, we're going to give you that full collegiate experience where mom and dad aren't around. Um, in fact, we had uh, dinner with him on the corner for the first time just last week. So first time we've actually kind of gotten together and had dinner like on grounds with him, uh, partly because of COVID, but you know, also because we're trying to give him his, give him his space. So, you know, I'm sure in a lot of ways it was an, not an easy decision because it's not an easy decision for these kids, but 
a decision that he looked at and it totally made sense for a lot of reasons, but also because of the lessons that you learned from your time at Virginia. So when, when you think back, what was Ben looking at that he saw in dad and like, and then I'll probably ask the same question to Macy when we have her on, but you know, about your experience, what did he see about your experience that in the back of his mind, he said, yeah, I, I want to have that too. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to sound like now like a marketing person here about UVA and, you know, Macy's job is in part to help promote UVA as an admissions dean. But um, uh, and I say this, I think, with some understanding, you know, we, we've had the opportunity, Macy and I, to be affiliated with a number of other elite top universities, um, you know, between the, the two of us, you know, MIT, Harvard, Princeton, Columbia, NYU, Duke, UNC, a, a little bit even. And um, we, we really do believe that there's something distinctive and special about UVA um, in comparison even to those elite universities. Um, I think there's something about um, the community that UVA builds that's unique. Um, uh, the diversity in a number of ways of, of, of the way it brings people together um, that I think is unique. I think something even about its public mission as a public university is an, an important part of that. And I think that pervades the undergraduate student experience. Um, uh, it doesn't mean everything's perfect. Um, I always like to say that like one of the things that makes UVA special is the traditions. Um, one of the hardest things I think UVA has to deal with is understanding what traditions are worth preserving and which traditions are, you know, need to go away. Uh, and, and I think sometimes people treat it as if like any tradition goes away, you know, the whole thing falls apart, which I don't think is true. Um, and I, I think the imps are a great example. Like that's a tradition worth holding on to for sure. Uh, and, and one that I think still continues to serve as kind of a, a, a lead for the university. So I think, you know, I think Ben saw the experience that Macy and I had and saw that community and that tightness that UVA creates, that loyalty. I mean, man, we have some of the most loyal alums in the, in the world. Um, and it's hard not to get kind of sucked into that. So you're doing a lot of talking and public speaking and guests here and there. What would you say if you got invited to come speak at a Sunday meeting in the chapel with the current imps, what words of wisdom would you give them in that speech? Uh, well, I mean, I think I'll probably say what a lot of people have said in terms of, you know, you know, live every moment, love every moment, understand um, what, a, what a wonderful opportunity you have. It's kind of like what you were saying about getting, uh, you know, dinner with friends in New York. Like, you know, don't underestimate how quickly this time goes by. Uh, and that this is an opportunity to build relationships that last a lifetime. Um, and so, so cherish that, cultivate that, work on it. Um, at, at the end of the day, I think those are um, the, you know, more important than any accomplishment you put on your resume, uh, any you know, accolade that you win. Um, it's, it's the relationships that matter. And if the, you had a question and answer session at the end of that talk, after you imparted that knowledge, and one of the imps in the very back of the chapel raised their hand and they said, Mike, the one question we want to know is what is your favorite word with the letters <laughs> IMP in it? How would you answer that? So, you know, I knew this was coming and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I don't want to say I'm going to cop out, but I'm going to copy Tony here and I'm going to give an obvious answer, but I will hopefully put a little bit of different spin on it. Um, and, and that's impact. Right. I, th I think a lot about impact. And one of the things that I think I've really come to appreciate, I think this is something Mr. Mead really embodied well, was an evolution in my own thinking of what impact means. I think as a younger man, um, you think about it in terms of changing the world and how am I going to have an impact on history or, you know, uh, policy or the like. And I still aspire for those things. But I, I, I've really come to appreciate as I've gotten older. Um, you know, not impact with the big eye, but impact with the little eye. Uh, the the impact you have on people uh, and people close by, um, and that includes things like your family, um, the impact you have on your kids and your spouse and uh, your other family members, the impact you have on your friends and your colleagues and your community members. Uh, clearly, for me, you know, the impact I have on my students. You know, that that's where real impact comes from. Um, again, it's not. It's not the big, the big eye stuff at the end of the day. It's the little eye stuff that matters. And it's how you live every day. Um, 
I, you know, it's something I talk a lot about to my students because I think they, they're going out in the world and they're all eager to have that big eye impact. Um, but I encourage them to think, you know, think about the little eye impact. Uh, we talk about, you know, think about your resume self and then think about your um, eulogy self. Uh, those are very, very different things. Um, I was fortunate to have a couple grandparents who lived uh, until their late 90s. If you live to your late 90s, your career often is just a blip in your life. So it's actually just a small part of the, the longer journey. And I think understanding that um, gives you time to kind of reflect and think about, again, how do you live the day to day? How are you trying to impact individuals? Um, and, and that's, again, that's where the real impact comes from. That is a great message to end our talk. I know time flew again. I'm looking at the timer here and I, uh, I, I'm blown away. I could probably spend another three hours with you because impact is what you've been doing, buddy. Impact on me personally, on your family, as a husband, as a dad, with the university students, everywhere you go. Mike Lennox is impact guy. So that was the perfect word for you. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. It's great hearing from you. And I think you probably opened up uh, your house for tons of visitors after listening to this one. Cause I think you said early on that come and stay whenever you want for as long as you want. Did I hear that? Is that correct? Yeah. I'm, I'm right off of rugby Ave. We don't use Lennox as our address. We use blank. Uh, the, the blank <laughs> family. Um, so you can find it there um, and you're welcome to stay anytime uh, uh, there. Hey, Tom, uh, let me just say uh, thank you. And, and thank you for the impact you're having because you are one of these people that truly is a connector. And those are, I find, the most valuable people in the world. So thank you for doing this and for connecting us all again. And um, you're having a huge impact um, with both a big eye and a little eye as well. So thank you. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, it has been a blast. It's been, uh, this has been the best therapy for me ever to be able to catch up with everyone to do this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on. Thanks for being you, Mike. And I can't wait to see you when I come down in the fall. Sounds good, Tom. All right, my man. Take care. Take care. Hi there, Tom here. Before I let you go, I want to tell you about my other podcast, Total Sense. As you may know, after my time as an imp, I went on to become a financial advisor. Okay, stop laughing. Don't act so surprised. In each episode, I share advice to parents about how to talk to kids about money. As a parent, I know how difficult that money conversation can be, so I hope you'll listen and find it helpful. It's Total Sense. C-E-N-T-S, as in money, available anywhere you get your podcasts.